Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. To hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, with Boston City Councilors eyeing the mayor's office, contenders are gathering support to fill what will soon be empty seats. Plus, as the April deadline of the CDC's eviction moratorium closes in, subletters find themselves stuck in the legal margins. And Governor Baker's administration plans a study to reimagine work after the pandemic. Those stories and more in our local news roundtable. Later in the show, 1980s New York, when the colorful graffiti on subway cars and walls moved from the streets to art galleries, leading the charge, a 20-something Jean-Michel Basquiat. Their work was considered crime. It was considered vandalism by the city. I mean, the city spent almost $300 million, I'm told, trying to uh, arrest and assault and harass and kind of deface these artists' work. I mean, the fact that it was seen as art was completely abhorrent to the city authority. How did this young emerging artist inspire a generation of artists, musicians, designers, and writers? But first, joining me remotely, Gen Dupchus, digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Hello, Gen. Hey, how are you? Glad to have you. Seth Daniels, senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. Glad to have you back, Seth. Great to be here, Kelly. And Sue O'Connell, political commentator for NECN and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello again, Sue. Hey, Kelly. All right. I want to start where, you know, all the conversation is these days, and that's with vaccinations. Um, I'm interested, Seth, in the Baker prioritizing Chelsea for vaccine outreach to residents. You know, we've been having this conversation about Chelsea being one of the hardest hit areas since the pandemic. This would seem to be obvious. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chelsea is not Chelsea alone. There are other cities and towns, but we're just now getting to it, I guess, is the point. Um, It is happening, but the announcement came just recently. Uh, Talk to me about what the community has been feeling there and what some of these other communities uh, have been feeling. Well, I would say that when the when the vaccine first came out, Chelsea was a place where it needed it the most because um, there are still a lot of essential workers who have never stopped going to work. Um, people a lot of times have to go out to get food. They're waiting in line still for food, um, unlike other communities. Um, but at the beginning, there was a lot of skepticism. It wasn't like people were rushing to get a vaccine uh, for a number of different reasons, whether it was immigration or just uh, general skepticism of the um, the health industry and how this was formulated and, and released and studied. But that has changed with, with a partnership um, that includes uh, the governor, that includes uh, the federal government. Elizabeth Warren was in Chelsea um, last week to announce that the federal government is partnering with Chelsea, the East Boston Neighborhood Health Center, and La Collaborativa, which is uh, our friend Gladys Vega running that. Um, and Manny Lopes at the health center, um, they have combined to transform the collaborative's offices into a vaccine site. 
And a lot of the skepticism you saw in Chelsea at the beginning has kind of been eroded with this site in a familiar place in the downtown with two partners um, who people trust. I mean, you know, Gladys Vega and her team have been delivering food and keeping people alive since March. Everybody trusts them, no matter what part of the community they're from. So there has been a switch, um, and the vaccine is becoming more available. It was announced when Liz Warren came last week that the uh, Chelsea um, partnership is in their site is getting direct access from the federal government. They don't have to go through um, Charlie Baker or the state. They're getting it right from the federal pipeline. So, Sue, part of what uh, Seth discussed is is what has been getting a lot of people mad about, you know, why has it taken so long to get to these communities that uh, clearly needed to be high on the list in terms of the impact of the pandemic and also the simple thing about having places where people can go where there are trusted partners in health because, you know, people are nervous about this for various reasons. So why has it taken so long? And what do you think about this move finally happening as we're in the middle of a broader discussion right here in uh, Massachusetts about equity and vaccine? Yeah, I mean, Chelsea and communities like Chelsea should have been prioritized from the get-go for all the reasons that Seth so eloquently laid out. And obviously, the lack of federal leadership from the Trump administration in helping these local organizations and folks on the ground doing this great work get the support that they need in order to get these trusted places where people can go to both get the testing, which was botched last year. And now here we are with this late rollout uh, in the vaccine. I mean, I think When we're on the other side of this and all is said and done, um, the repetitive, redundant mistakes that were made on the state level here in Massachusetts and on the local level in the country are just going to be an embarrassment for everyone. Um, This is not rocket science in terms of the vaccine hesitancy that communities of color have, which is well-earned in a sad and tragic way. And we all know from our experience working in communities that having ambassadors from communities who are trusted to deliver information in the language that people are more likely to speak is essential. None of those things were happening until now. And again, the great work for the people on the ground, the grassroots community organizers who have been pushing this But it just makes my blood boil over and over again uh, that we keep making the same mistake. At the same time, I'm thrilled that finally Chelsea's being highlighted and other communities for uh, the vaccine. Because, again, getting vaccinated, right, is something you do for your community and for others, not just for yourself. And many of these folks are working on the front lines. If they're vaccinated, they're keeping us safe. So I'm just thrilled it's happening and angry that it took so long. And as I like to remind people, it really doesn't matter if you rush to get to the front of the line and get vaccinated because it's herd immunity. If we all don't get it, it doesn't work. (laughs) Gen, do you want to weigh in? Well, sure. The, the Boston Business Journal actually just had a had a panel uh, recently with uh, the heads of Mass General, uh, Boston Children's, Beth uh, Israel Leahy Health. And I think what they all kind of agreed on was it, it really came down to supply and how do you manage the supply that, that was received. And that's been uh, part of the bumpiness. And the head of Boston Children's uh, said, as we get more supply, I believe that will continue to be smoothed out as we identify different areas and different populations. Now, for uh, Lori Glincher, who uh, is head of Dana-Farber, she said she was incredibly frustrated because they were, until recently, not able to vaccinate patients with cancer. 
Um, and when you think about patients with cancer, these are folks who are very ill who have an increased chance of getting COVID. And, and it wasn't until recently when, when the, the, the threshold dropped to people 75 and over, that's when uh, folks with cancer started to be able to, to get vaccinated. So I, I think that the emotions run the gamut and the feelings uh, run, run the gamut. And I feel like a lot of this frustration is largely due to a hangover from the previous administration of just leaving it up to the states uh, and the states not realizing it until it was too late that they were basically on their own. Well, I think that's true. But I have to say that, you know, anybody could see coming that there were certain areas and communities that needed to be addressed. And you're right about cancer patients, of course. But um, when you just look out geographically, all the algorithms told us, even the basic ones, where the heart of the problem was. So not to think about that and think about how you would make sure that those communities who by the way, most of the people in those communities are still working, be at the head of the list, is, is a little problematic. I think that's a discussion that definitely is going to be going on for a while. So we shall see. But again, while you're talking, let's move over to a piece that uh, you pointed out, which is about this seismic shift, as the headline says, in hospitality industry. And this, again, also is um, COVID-related. Um, tell us about it. So uh, our real estate editor, Catherine Carlock, she, she's got her finger on the pulse uh, on real estate in Boston. And what she found was a Boston development firm uh, had a hotel approved near South Station, and now they're deciding to swap it for a residential tower. And, and I think, you know, we, we know the hotel industry, the hospitality industry um, has been uh, one of the hardest hit sectors in the pandemic. And I think there's a, a general sense that the, the industry is not going to fully recover until 2023, 2024. So what developers are now looking at, they're looking at what's in their portfolio, and if they have projects that are in the pipeline, early enough in the pipeline, they're seeing, well, maybe we can go to residential because there is a, a very deep need uh, in Boston and elsewhere in Massachusetts for homes. Supply is uh, outstripped by demand, and I think developers are basically going, they're, they're doing the economic math in their heads, and they're saying, let's go where, where the money will probably be uh, once we're clear of the pandemic. What do you say about that, Sue? Well, I'm excited to see that some of these companies, which are not small, are able to quickly pivot. Mm. Um, you know, in the past, it, it's taken a long time, and sometimes they would just think, "Let's ride it out and see what happens," and that doesn't really ever serve anyone. So, um, I'm excited that they are looking forward to see how they can adapt to what the new marketplace is going to be, and that hopefully, uh, adding more of either office space that is needed or housing uh, will helpfully take some of the pressure off the marketplace when we return, whenever that is. But I'm, I'm excited to see that there's, there's actually some thinking out of the box as instead of just scrapping or holding, uh, I think we're all old enough to have remembered during the last uh, economic crash, those empty buildings. I think some, some mm. stores in Newbury Street never really recovered. So it's good to see that they're thinking, how do we manage this as inventory rather than how do we manage it as what the intention originally was? And again, because this is where you live in terms of the business journal and looking around at all these kinds of things, one of our uh, my colleagues, Saria Wintersmith, just did a piece about how the old Boston Globe building, which was supposed to be one thing, has now been pivoted to become something else because, again, it, it feels like it's COVID-related, but they thought could happen there in terms of offices just doesn't seem to be feasible in the way that they envisioned it originally. Yeah, and, that, and that's an area, I mean, I, I, I used to work for the Dorchester Reporter, so I know I know that area well. I remember going to the meetings with the with the neighborhood groups and, and all of them talking about, 
uh, what they wanted in that in that area. Uh, I think one one person wanted a 17-story tower over JFK UMass MBTA station. <laughs> he wanted a Prudential Center okay. uh, uh, right on top. Um, so so it's, it is it is fascinating to to kind of watch it develop. You know that Columbia Columbia Savin Hill, as that area is known, and Columbia Point. It's really you know it's primed for for massive development. And I think all these different moving pieces, uh, while they were somewhat scrambled during the the, the pandemic, I think. It's been it's been fascinating to watch play out and and see how how they keep moving and keep pressing forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think we'll be able to count all the pivots that are going to be happening in the next few weeks before it all settles down, if it does, anytime soon. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is Gin Dupchis of the Boston Business Journal, Sue O'Connell of NECN, Bay Windows, and the South End News, and Seth Daniel with the Independent News Group. It's our local news roundtable discussion. Um, Seth, wow. Boy, you always bring something that just... uh, it's really hard. So this is something I really hadn't thought about, but it's right there looking at me, subletting. So in a, at a time where, you know, people are scrambling to stay in whatever residence they can stay in, particularly rental units, subletting now is an issue. And as you say in this piece, which I want you to elaborate on, these yeah. people are kind of on the fringes. So how does this work? And is there no protection, those uh, eviction sort of waivers that were okay for some people? Does that work? Does that not work for subletters? That's a complicated question. So how, how it works is it's been going on for quite some time in Chelsea, especially. Um, and the way it, it works, and if you were to go to a laundromat in Chelsea or a coffee shop, you'll see little flyers on the, on the, bulletin board or the wall or wherever they put up flyers mm-hmm. yeah. and it's you know room for rent um or it's usually in spanish um and so it's a phone number and frequently you go to store to store to these flyers and it's all the same phone number and interestingly enough um a lot like airbnb a lot of people were taking up the housing stock renting apartments if they had a social security number and and um and everything you would need security deposit, and, and they rent all these different apartments all over the city, and then they sublet them to people who, you know, are in the shadows. Um, and this has been going on a long time. You know, they'll have a three-bedroom apartment. You could see as many as 10 to 15 people in there. This is why COVID spread so fast in Chelsea, by the way. Um, and this, this happens all over in mostly the established neighborhoods of Chelsea, where there's high, high density already, and, and this adds even more. Well, um, what has happened is if the person holding the apartment stops paying the rent to the landlord, the landlord oftentimes doesn't even know that subletting is happening or they don't care or they don't want to know. And so let's say the person who holds the apartment but doesn't live there gets evicted. Mm-hmm. Well, then you have 10 to 15 people who are paying the person getting evicted who are also kicked out on the street and, and they have very, you know, this isn't something that's going to end up in housing court, um, not an eviction case. And a lot of times it's street justice. It's, um, you know, uh, turn off the lights, you know, go down in the basement and turn off, not the electric company, but go down in the basement and flick off the, um, the circuit breaker so there's no electricity to get them out. And, and where do they go? Who knows? Um, so it's treated as an emergency situation. Um, Chelsea has a very innovative legal aid clinic that the city pays for. And they actually go to the courts and they hold at the food pantry uh, a legal clinic um, twice a week. And people in this situation can go there and, and, and they have found there's precedent that there are some legal protections 
you know, it may not be a case that wins in court, but there can be a resolution negotiated. Um, so all hope isn't lost. But a lot of times, you know, people are very scared um, in this situation and they're very vulnerable. And so it's treated like an emergency situation, almost like we might um, talk about at Mass Cast in Boston where, you know, you're out on the street just trying to find people who are in crisis and then get them somewhere um, safe. And, and that's kind of what's going on. Um, the providers in Chelsea, they do. They go door to door. They look for uh, places where they know this is happening. And they look for people who might be on the verge of getting kicked out or who were just kicked out. And, and it's a hard situation. It doesn't show up on paper. There's no stats for it. But it's probably the biggest housing issue in, in Chelsea, probably in Everett, East Boston, you name it. And so just to be clear, that really goes for the people who rented the apartment, not the people who are subletting right. from the renters, if I'm right. Exactly. Okay. This is all off the books. Again, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I just believe this is pro- I mean, I think there's a lot of it going on in Chelsea and, and Everett, as Seth has just said. But I think this is going on everywhere. Well, yes. I mean, I, re- I remember growing up in, in, uh, in an apartment in, in Quincy and, and, you know, I, I, I knew a couple of houses uh, on my block definitely had, you know, 10 to 15 people living um, either in the basement or elsewhere. And I think to, to Seth's point, it's, it's kind of providing this knowledge and the cliche goes knowledge is power, but, but it's true. And it's Massachusetts is known as a, as a fairly uh, renter friendly state and, and allowing these folks to get that information so that they can, stand up and, and, uh, and push back where they need to, but also giving them the space, uh, understanding that they might be fearful of government where they're coming from. The gov- government was not kind. Giving them the space and, and, and try, trying to you know, both empower them, but also make them feel like they can do what they can to survive, really. Oh, God. Sue? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those off-the-books economies, I think, Kelly, that have existed since the dawn of time. I mean, I know growing up in Revere, there were always illegal apartments or illegal rooms that were rented. And it, it until disaster strikes or until something goes wrong, uh, it kind of just hums along and no one pays attention to it, right? This is when we've seen some of these terrible fires in Boston over the years. Uh, and a number of uh, students or people crammed into an apartment that it was not licensed to have. It was over capacity. You go on Craigslist still, you can still find rooms to rent that are not um, necessarily part of the, uh, you don't become part of the, the landlord agreement. So, you know, I think that, that again, this is, this is an opportunity when we get back on our feet to take a look at all of the economies, right, on the books and off the books and figure out ways that we can provide safety nets for people who uh, don't qualify because, uh, you know, for one reason or another, they were not able to participate in the system. And I use the word legitimate carefully in a legitimate way that would get them Mm -hmm. the protections that other people have. Well, some of the people that might be making decisions about those new rules and regulations or economies, as you put it, Sue, are folks who are lining up to run for at-large seats on the Boston City Council. Um, Some of those seats have become free as people sit currently holding them have decided to run for mayor. Here's Erin Murphy introducing herself on Facebook Live as she announces her run for a Boston City Councilor at-large seat. The COVID-19 pandemic has made campaigning and connecting with you, the voters, very different than in past elections. We won't have parades, festivals, backyard cookouts, youth sports, and other events across the city to connect in the usual way. So, Sue, boy, it's a crowd. 
and it's yeah. not over yet. <laughs> I have to say, as someone myself who wakes up every morning and says, thank God I'm not the mayor. Thank God I'm not the governor. Thank God I'm not an elected official. You know, I can't imagine these people saying, yes, I'll, I'll raise my hand, take me. So those, those, there's four uh, at-large seats on the council. Two of them will be open. There's the whole runoff process, which I won't get us into the weeds in. Uh, the only at-large councilors remaining uh, during this whole mayor race is going to be uh, Michael Flaherty and Julia Mahia. So their seats remain the same. And then you've got, so far, as we talk today, uh, Kelly Bates from Hyde Park, who's a nonprofit leader many people may know, Aaron Murphy you just talked to, uh, David Halbert from uh, Mattapan, Alex Gray from JP, and Said Abdekaram, and Dominicos De Rosa, and Nick Vance. Many of them have been involved in either running before or working for uh, uh, mayoral candidates or working in the Walsh administration. Um, so I think it, it, it will also help voter turnout, I think, uh, this fall for the mayor's race, because the at-large race, as some may not know, is citywide. So you're running uh, not just for a district, but for the entire city. Uh, and that generally brings a lot of attention and, and a lot of debates and a lot of great discussion. So uh, I think we're going to see a very, very exciting summer political season when it comes to uh, Boston uh, politics this year. So I'm excited about it. I'm glad I'm, glad I'm not running. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> so, um, Seth, you know, let's just emphasize at large, because that is really tough. At large seats are, are tough to win. I would say um, also, too, that I'm a little surprised because, um, and I've heard, I've heard from some candidates that it's a little stunted at the moment, you know, in terms that there's not as many as there would have been. Hmm. Um, and a lot of a lot of candidates, um, maybe who went through a primary for state office last year, have kind of shared that it's impossible to run in COVID, especially if you're an on the ground person. Hmm. If you're like like Aaron Murphy was saying, you know, a, a cookout, um, you know, little league uh, shaking the hands. Um, if you're that kind of a politician, you know, COVID is tough, and if you're not tech savvy, it's impossible. Um, so I, I think there are a lot of candidates who. They think that it's it's not worth it this time, maybe in two years, run again. That's definitely going on. And Kelly, I I neglected to mention Elsie Garrison, who oh, yes. was talking about tech savvy, who oh, yes. is running again, right. who uh, has been on the ballot, uh, I don't know, every year for about 20 years and did uh, fill uh, Ayanna Presley's city council seat when Ayanna went to Congress and served on the council for a year. She's running again. And I would I would say don't ever count her out because right. <laughs> yeah. that's right. Yeah. So again, um, you care to place any bets on who might at this point, given what we all know about the difficulties of introducing yourself and getting to be known across the city, who might have a best bet of the ones that we know about now? I mean, I, I think a lot of it is about building name recognition, and 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 that's that's a tough thing. Um, I I will say that I think it's having covered Boston and, and, and politics for about 15 years uh, before uh, heading to the Business Journal, um, it's it's refreshing to see the new faces. For a long time, Boston just had kind of the same the same politicians, uh, you know, for, for 20, 20 plus years. And I think, um, and, and, I, and I will say when, when Mayor Walsh came in, I don't, I don't think there was any expectation that he would stay for, you know, as long as Mayor Menino or, or previous mayors. But it's it's been it's been good to see folks uh, running and getting involved. Um, I, I do think there's a side debate too sometimes happening whether having an elected school committee would have sped up this process of 
creating a pipeline and uh, helping folks build that citywide base. I guess that's a debate for another day. But for me, I'm just kind of I'm watching it from afar, and I'm saying, well, you know, this is this is quite overdue, and and it's it's good to see folks running and not being afraid uh, of being punished by by folks who who deeply believe in in waiting your turn in politics. Well, as someone who has moderated the last mayor uh, candidates, what, what were they? Twelve at the end, ten, twelve. Twelve. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a delightful experience. <laughs> not. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, but at least they were in one place and people could kind of look at them. This is tough, I have to say, um, having covered that uh, fourth district with all those candidates. That was really tough for people to get their message out. So uh, we'll see how it goes. Meanwhile, again, I think the governor is moving into trying to get some feedback on an issue that's at the center or it feels like it's at the center for many of us, for all of us, really, who are working, and that is what will work look like after the pandemic. Um, And before you respond to it, let's take a listen to Susan Lund. She's a partner at the Boston Workforce Consulting Firm, McKinsey Global Institute, and she talked about the future of work earlier this month. COVID-19 is going to have a large and lasting impact on work and the workforce. And that's because many of the changes in consumer and business behavior that we started during the pandemic are going to persist. Those include things like hybrid work from home models, the shift to e-commerce and digital channels, and an acceleration in the adoption of AI and automation for some use cases. Again, what does the governor want to know? It's very, very broad, uh, and it's, I think it's going to be a tough, for, for whatever company accepts the governor's uh, task of finding out exactly what's happening with the post-pandemic future of work, it, it, it's, it's a tall order just because I think it'll, it'll be all over the place. And I think you, ha- you have so many different interest groups, so many different sectors competing on this. Commercial landlords obviously want people back as soon as possible. And, you know, I think they're, they're worried, are they going to see more and more subleasing of office space? Uh, what is it going to mean for prices? From from the worker end, I think people are seeing the fact that they can work from home, even if it's a couple of days a week, and work does not suffer. If anything, uh, people are working even harder. Uh, whatever whatever time you make up from not being on the MBTA for white collar workers, uh, you're you're still working hard at home. And I think that'll be kind of the battling the two interest groups there. The other part is research showing that if you bifurcate the office and you have some people coming in others staying home and the schedules aren't cohesive the folks who are staying at home could be hurt in advancing or or getting face time with the boss Mm. so i think whatever plan we come up with has to be inclusive it has to think about how everybody is going to deal with this whatever the future holds we need to really think about it and make sure that that we don't leave people behind. To your point, it is a broad uh, look to see how we're all feeling. But, uh, Sue, I think it's really important that who, whoever heads this commission, this research, whatever, really asks a wide variety of people because those of us who are doing this hybrid thing, who meaning that we can work from home, have very different needs and, I think, thoughts on this than people who could never work from home. Um, and that all has an impact. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm also struck by how this is sort of the conversation that 
people wanted to have 20 years ago about ways to get more women into the workforce, right? What happens mm. if women could work from home? What happens if women could do job shares? Remember the old job share idea where one woman could work in the morning and one in the afternoon? Yep. What about yep. parenting yep. hours yep. where you had a job where you could be out by the time the kids, you know, arrive after school started and be home by the time the kids got home? And, and that was always such a challenge because I'm struck by, you know, Gin saying, well, FaceTime with the boss and advancement. And these are all the challenges that women have had in the workplace being the main caretakers at home for their children. So I, too, am hoping that not only does uh, the conversation include uh, those who choose to work from home, can work from home, can't work from home, but also how is this going to help women get back into the workforce equally since we are the ones who are carrying the greater burden, having stepped out of the workforce due to the pandemic, still 100 years away from pay equity, right? Yep, <laughs> Even if yep. things hadn't happened. So uh, it's a heavy lift here, but I think uh, the more the merrier when it comes to looking at the different aspects and constituencies that need to be addressed. Uh, Seth? Yes. I, I know that state reps from the downtown area um, have been looking at this since last summer and fall, you know, informally and trying to figure out what's going to happen with commercial real estate. One of the things at the epicenter of this is actually in the back bay, the Lord and Taylor's um, building, which is the huge department store and it's closed, it's gone. And so what will that be? I know a lot of neighbors in the back bay are wondering, you know, as that goes, maybe the rest goes, what, what could that giant shopping center become? Um, and everybody wonders and nobody really knows yet. Um, could it be housing? Could it be school? <laughs> could it be um, affordable housing? Who knows? Um, what will all these big spaces that are gone, hmm. what will they be? I don't know. Amazon. Um, yeah, Amazon. <laughs> well, <laughs> we all need packages. <laughs> Y'all are laughing, but, you know, that's a real possibility, I would say. Right. And I would say that's when we're talking about the future of work and, and post-pandemic life, we do need to include e-commerce workers, uh, you know, the Uber mm. Eats folks, the, you know, Lyft drivers, um, you know, they've borne the brunt of a lot of um, the, the, the added demand. I mean, I certainly see trucks going up and down my suburban street all day, every day. And, you know, I, I assume they know the neighborhood by heart by now, but it's, it's something they, they need to be included too, because there's questions about, you know, how they're being treated, uh, certainly questions nationwide about whether Amazon is treating its employees um, equitably and, and uh, as they should be. So it's they e-commerce workers should be included in that future of work as well. I think all of that is true. I have just a little time to do two things. One thing I'm just going to mention, because I don't have time for you all to delve into it. But Seth, this is a story. I like all your old building stories. This is the uh, League of Women for Community Service Building at 558 Mass Ave, which I know very well. My sorority used to meet there. It's been in somewhat disrepair and not much use, but now there's a group of people uh, dedicated uh, to bringing it back, and it looks like they have some financial support. So I just want to mention that. um, And it's in the South End, which Sue knows this building very well as well. And that's a good thing. I'm, You know, anytime you can bring back this history uh, and get support to do it, they have a long way to go, of course, but but I think that's a good thing. Right. Well, they just got $400,000 from the city for the community. I think that's fabulous. All right. And my last seconds I want to use to say congratulations to you, Seth. Well, I don't know the award that you won. Please tell us. You just won an award. Uh, Oh, (laughs) oh, yes. Yes. Um, uh, The Chelsea Record (laughs) newspaper and myself and uh, our staff were 
uh, Chelsea Trailblazers for Black History Month, the um, Chelsea Black Community, which is an organization in Chelsea, CBC as they're known, very strong organization. They put together an uh, outstanding program every year for Black History Month. And this year they moved to Zoom. But with Chelsea being hit so hard, they, they recognized a lot of the people who stepped up, um, whether it was food pantries or even the newspaper. And so this year, uh, the newspaper, myself and our staff were, um, were uh, awarded Chelsea Trailblazer Awards. Um, and and we, we um, cherish that award. <laughs> it means a lot, actually. I've, it's the first time I've ever been given an award for my oh. work, um, honestly. And I think it's probably the best award I've ever gotten, even if it's the only one. <laughs> oh, I think it's that's fabulous. It's nothing like being recognized by your constituency. Uh, right. as having serving them well because uh, so many of us uh, reporters, that's what we crave, that's what we're here for, to make certain that uh, we're making a difference uh, among the people who read us, listen to us, and uh, view us. Right. So congrats, and I thank, thank all of you for joining me. Thank you. Congratulations, Seth. Congratulations. Gen Dumchus is the digital editor for the Boston Business Journal. Seth Daniel is a senior reporter with the Independent News Group, which includes the Chelsea Record and Revere Journal. And Sue O'Connell is a political commentator for NECN and co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Coming up, everybody is talking about him again. Across pop culture and sports, there's a resurgence of posthumous recognition for Jean-Michel Basquiat, the graffiti artist turned Manhattan art scene sensation. The work of the Afro-Latino artist and his influence on today's hip-hop culture is highlighted in a new exhibition at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts called Writing the Future, Jean-Michel Basquiat and the Hip-Hop Generation. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It ain't hard to tell. I'm the new Jean Michel. Surrounded by Warhols, my whole team ball. That's Jay-Z, one of the kings of hip-hop, referencing Jean-Michel Basquiat, a pioneer of the post-graffiti movement. But it isn't just Jay-Z, an avid collector of Basquiat's work, who the young artist inspired. Basquiat set the stage for the entire hip-hop culture we have today. Basquiat has been gone for 32 years, dying at the age of 27 of a heroin overdose. But his art lives on, along with the legacy he leaves in the fashion, film, and literature realms. Basquiat's diverse cultural heritage also continues to shape other Black and Hispanic artists. A new exhibit at Boston's Museum of Fine Arts takes a closer look at Basquiat's influence on an entire cultural generation and why his work continues to speak to so many today. Joining me remotely, Greg Tate, writer, musician, and co-curator of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston exhibition, Writing the Future, Basquiat and the Hip-Hop Generation. Welcome, Greg. Howdy, Kelly. Also with me, Jordana Moore Sajese, Associate Professor of American Art at the University of Maryland College Park and the author of Reading Basquiat Exploring Ambivalence in American Art. Hi, Jordana. 
Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have both of you. Um, We should start by letting people have a visual in their minds about what the exhibition looks like. And you enter the MFA exhibition by going downstairs, and you're met with this film playing featuring subway cars that the graffiti artist used as a canvas. It's a pretty exciting way to enter into the world of Jean-Michel Basquiat's work and his compatriots who worked with him. It's a multi-gallery exhibit which features his work, but also the crew of the people in his inner circle. He drew from them and they drew from him. It was a co-inspiration. So, Greg, I want to start by asking you if you can really say who Jean-Michel Basquiat was, as you would define him, and why it is important in this exhibition to see him in the context of other artists. Well, he's an artist who emerged from a Brooklyn home, from a dual ancestry parentage. His father was uh, Haitian and his mother was Puerto Rican. Uh, You know, his family was middle class. He essentially established himself in this uh, downtown scene that was flourishing with creativity and with uh, with Black creativity coming from all the boroughs and in, uh, across all the disciplines. So he's part of a dynamic swashbuckling time in American art that for the first time benefited from an opening for the youth culture, um, the youth cultures of color that had kind of flooded downtown and it come off of about 10 years of um, creative adventures transforming the uh, the vista of the of the city uh, skyline through the work on the subway trains, which is the movement is known as uh, graffiti uh, within hip hop culture is known as writing. A number of the artists in the show kind of made this leap from the trains into the galleries around the same time that John Michelle became well known. And one of them, uh, Fab Five Freddy, was really probably more significant for establishing that bridge between um, subway work and the galleries. Through a piece you actually see in uh, the first space you enter as you come down those stairs is one where um, we've got large screen playing segment from a film called Style Wars, which was all about kind of an inside look at the world of, of writing graffiti. And uh, there's also a recreation of a famous train that uh, Fab Five Freddy painted that kind of used the motif of Warhol's take on Campbell's soup cans to also kind of address art history and the art world and also um, place the culture of the writers, of the graffiti writers, within that context. Fred pretty much establishes that there's a continuum between the train and art history. Okay. Jordana Moore Sajese, let me ask you, you have said that Basquiat was so important in your life because, as you say, he broke all the rules. So help me understand what his style was about in terms of breaking all the rules and why that's important when we start to think about him and his crew here influencing hip hop. Yeah, that's great. You know, I think Basquiat is a great example who, from in many ways, sort of uses the system against itself. Greg Tate has written about this as well, right? That Basquiat's work is not necessarily about placing himself within a European tradition, but about critiquing that tradition. And what was really interesting to me is the ways in which he cannibalizes images and histories that are not meant for him, right? These these are histories that are not accepting of Black people. He's citing modern European masters of painting like Picasso and Leonardo, right? It speaks to the strategy of sort of working on and against the system of art, but also kind of letting us know what he knows. And, you know, to go back to what Greg said, you, you see the same in the graffiti of, of that by Freddie, right? Where he's appropriating those soup cans, right? Painting a whole train with Dada soup, pop soup, futurist soup, uh, citing all those art historical movements. And this is really a form of critical citation, right? A way to 
affirm the place of graffiti or maybe even Black creativity itself in a history of the avant-garde. And so that's what really interested me in Basquiat is this idea of working on and against the system um, of art. And um, here's MFA co-creator Liz Munsell uh, talking about how Basquiat's relationship with hip-hop often gets misunderstood. It's so interesting how some people who knew Jean-Michel will say like, oh, he wasn't hip-hop. It's like, well, then why do all these hip-hop artists, you know, embrace him as part of their legacy? I find that just very interesting because a couple of things that both of you have said that I think people get wrong. First of all, um, you made the point, Greg, that he came from a middle-class family. I think a lot of people have thought of him as, you know, the guy from the streets did street art, and he sort of grittily rose to riches, you know, from, from that place. And uh, Jordana, of you said, you know, he was very clear about what he was doing. This wasn't like, oh, I think I'll just slap this over here and put this over here. He he very well knew uh, what he was doing with those images and that in placing them the way he did and using those words, he was trying to say something completely different than had been said before. So I, I just wanted to have both of you respond to that because I think that gets mixed up. Greg, you said that's that's the myth about some of the narratives. The reality is he emerges in the same time period that Gerald Ford basically told New York to drop dead if you go by the famous New York Post headline um, because the, the city was struggling financially, going bankrupt, you know, and there had been the um, the blackout riots of 77, which increased just the amount of tension between poverty and wealth in the city. So, I mean, this is kind of this troubled and dangerous period, you know, really in New York. And I would say that, you know, both things, him coming from the middle class, but him kind of rising from the streets. Well, both of those things are are true because um, once you enter into downtown New York in the 80s or late 70s, early 80s, you are part of a street culture, a culture that's really kind of driven and defined by what goes on in the street, particularly if we're talking about Lower East Side Alphabet City, you know, where he and many of these artists began to establish themselves culturally um, as kind of cultural fixtures, as cultural players. You know, he began doing work on the walls, he kind of first made his name in a, in a very kind of clandestine, stealthy manner. While he had great ambitions, as the world has kind of subsequently realized, there's no guarantee that he was going to be able to make this improbable leap from being a a wall artist to the international gallery system. Hip-hop, post-graffiti, punk rock, you know, these things were so defining of a transformed kind of cultural landscape, uh, not just in in, uh, New York, but in the world. And it created this opening downtown for these artists to be seen by the art world, by the dealers, because they um, they opened this space to these artists who were coming out of a, a situation where their work was considered crime. It was considered vandalism by the city. I mean, the city spent almost $300 million, I'm told, trying to uh, arrest and assault and harass and kind of deface these artists' work. I mean, the fact that it was seen as art was completely abhorrent to the city authorities. The fact that we're talking about Jean-Michel Basquiat and Fab Five Freddy and Lady Pink and Lee and Futura and LA2 and Toxic and A1 in the context of an institution like the MFA is complete and utter madness to, to some sensibility. Jordana, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, those those early mythologies and the ways that our own sort of prejudices and stereotypes as a culture, right, around the emergence of graffiti and particularly under around the emergence of sort of very Black uh, creative art form 
really has impacted, you know, his critical reception, you know, to go back to, you know, what the curator was saying, you know, and, and what Greg was saying as well, you know, one of the most interesting things about that early writing that Basquiat is doing along with his friend Al Diaz under the pseudonym Samo is that it is extremely targeted, right? He's painting on the walls of downtown Manhattan in Tribeca and Soho where all the galleries are, right? He's painting in sort of the neighborhoods around the art schools, like the School of Visual Arts, right? Where Keith Haring is and Kenny Sharper attending as well as the Cooper Union. But, you know, I think what's really consistent that we see in sort of the early reception of Basquiat is that he's, you know, discounted, misunderstood, overlooked, right? Even when I took my first art history courses in college, no one taught his work. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, really runs parallel to the early reception of hip hop, right? As we originally sort of saw it within the musical world as maybe just party music or unsophisticated, right? And, and I would argue that, you know, we have sort of taken a turn, right? And begun to take hip hop seriously. I think that we can see sort of its intellectual potential, its political potential. A lot of my work has been about trying to get us to look at those same qualities in Basquiat to consider his sophistication as an artist, right? That these like his engagement with legacies of appropriation from fine art to hip hop to jazz have all been sort of overlooked in the interest of perpetuating myths, right? About sort of the angry young artist or his primitive interests or background. Um, so I absolutely agree that, you know, putting him within the sort of larger context of hip hop is extremely important because they share a, a, a challenge to the hierarchies of sort of high and low, right? Popular cultural critical culture. And I think that in, in both cases, you know, bringing this work into a museum, you know, hopefully creates more points of connection, um, you know, for a wider public who see themselves and see their culture recognized um, by a mainstream institution. His reach is still going on, even as we speak. I, I note that there is a basketball team planning to honor him by putting uh, some of his work or something that looks like his work on their jerseys. Yeah, Brooklyn Nets, <laughs> his hometown team. The Brooklyn Nets, yes. So uh, there's a new 40th anniversary edition of a book about Basquiat. So it's fascinating that someone who died a long time ago, who's 27, and whose legacy continues his outreach. I wanted to let my listeners hear how he has influenced hip-hop today. The title of the exhibition is Writing the Future, and that could be interpreted as that moment, the future, or now, the future. So here's a little snippet that we put together. This is uh, Greg's co-creator, Liz Monsell, followed by Jay-Z. And you will hear just Jay-Z's influence about uh, talking about how the King imagery in particular, which was very common in Basquiat's work, influenced his art and music. Jay-Z talks about this painting, particularly the expression in the corner here that says most young kings get their heads cut off. And this idea of graffiti culture going over, erasing somebody, like somebody's um, signature to make way for the next visual regime. And, you know, most kings just happen to be inspired by a Basquiat drawing, you know, the drawing, and he had the most young kings get their head cut off on the bottom. And I looked at that and I was like, it's powerful. You know, just the statement in itself, you know, lends itself for a song. Most 
Um, I thought that was beautiful to see how Jay-Z was inspired by his work. Again, he's one of the largest collector of Basquiat's work. What is uh, striking those who've come after Jean-Michel Basquiat and his his group of uh, fellow compatriots at this time period in the graffiti movement? What is it that connects uh, Greg Tate? The inspiration that they've provided to now a global movement called street art is undeniable. So anywhere you go in the world, have kind of picked up the paintbrush from these artists who, you know, really had a 10-year run on the New York subway system to just create masterpiece after masterpiece. The photographers, uh, Henry Chalifant and uh, Martha Cooper, who are really so significant in terms of capturing like just hundreds of these pieces with their photography. And uh, that legacy has spread across the world. But I mean, they also, you know, we're looking at um, certainly since the mid 90s, kind of a breakthrough of artists of color, certainly of black artists, African-American artists into the gallery system that, you know, would not have happened without Basquiat's precedent and that of the the post-graffiti artists, you know, because um, at the time in which they emerged, I mean, the idea of a fine artist, a gallery artist in America, in New York, certainly, and in, in the world was a middle-aged white male uh, doing minimalist work. So they brought back painting in a, in a big way, figurative painting in a big way, painting that used um, language in very provocative ways as hip hop did. And then they brought all of this rebellious energy to just how they formally approached the canvas. I mean, there's analogies that you could easily make between what they were doing and what uh, DJs and rappers were doing and hip-hop producers were doing in terms of, you know, bombing and sampling and tagging and a certain kind of poetic use of language, you know, uh, within titles and within the work itself. Their work is so unified with what hip-hop became as a movement that had a multi-dimensional, multidisciplinary aspect to it, which we really use the show to exemplify. You know, and we also, you know, there's a lot of emphasis we put on the collaboration between these artists that are that are seen on various works and in, in various mediums. You know, I mean, the downtown world was not really that big. You know, I mean, it's very kind of circumscribed territory. So everybody was tripping over everybody else, you know, just going out in the street by day or by night. Thank you, Greg. Uh, Jordana, I just want to add to that and say that his work was focused on issues about race and history. I mean, he was very deliberate about it, even if people tried to not understand what he was saying or, or move away from, from those issues. But he, he centered his work around those issues. And I, I wonder what you think about its relevance in this moment. Again, we're writing the future in this exhibition. But before you answer, I just want to play this moment from a film directed by David Shulman. This is an American master's film called Basquiat Rage to Riches. And here, Basquiat himself is talking about uh, one piece of his work, and it's followed by MFA co-creator Liz Munsell about how slavery influenced his work. It's called a slave auction. A yes, slave auction. Yes, Not yes. in America, with a tobacco trade. Oh. And this is a complete irony. You put a halo on top. He's a martyr, or, you know, he's like, he's like dead, you know. It's like the boat, you know. This is the boat. The boat that brings the Africa, yes. you know. He's like, well, how much do I get for the for the slave here? How much is how much do I get for fifty dollars for the slave, you know? On the top right, his reference to Texas cows, oil, petrol, these nods to industry and goods are very common in his work as he's talking about like commodity culture. The commodification of the black body through slavery comes up in his work. So, Jordana, listening to that, I wonder, what does, this, what does his work say in this moment of racial reckoning? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Basquiat really is, is above all providing for us a methodology for really challenging the establishment, um, for critiquing the divisions of class and race that, that organize our lives, right? And as the clip, you know, played this, this interest in martyrdom, right? Sort of the, the role of the black body um, as, a, as a laboring body, you know, going back even further to, you know, Jay-Z's comment about the most young kings get their heads cut off, right? That's, that is a reference to, to this, but it's also a reference to King Charles I, um, you know, sort of the first cult of the so-called martyr kings beheaded in, in 1649. He's connecting that link back to Charlie Parker, who's also a subject of that, of that canvas, thinking of him as Charles I. So I think that there's a multidimensionality that's happening here. I would say the same thing for his engagement with things like economy and industry, commodity culture, commercialization. You know, he's interested not just in sort of the ways in which slavery was, you know, a, a way in which we profit, right, or certain people profited um, from the labor of Black bodies, but he's also cr critical of his own position within that landscape, right, and we see a lot of references um, on the canvas of, of his own questioning of his, of his role within the art world, um, within commodity culture, what happens when a painting, um, you know, he has a really wonderful canvas, uh, he's appropriated Leonardo's Mona Lisa, and really kind of transformed it um, into a dollar bill, right? And so what does it mean that when art becomes a commodity and when the artist becomes the product? Um, I think this is something that's really unique about Basquiat's moment of the 1980s, because as Greg talks about, you know, he's really trapped in this incredibly rapidly growing art market, right? Where artists are suddenly celebrities. Um, and, you know, he's walking in fashion shows for Comme des Garçons, and he's getting interviewed on, on MTV News and going to the MTV Video Music Awards where, you know, Eddie Murphy's the, the host. So, you know, he's really thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be a, a Black person who has always been an outsider to become an insider? And that sort of, you know, very um, controversial position that he occupies. I think that he is someone that is critical of that position and challenging that position. And I think that's something that we can really still learn from today, where we see that, you know, we are making space for Black voices. And this is something that really at that space has to be self-made. Um, and that's really what, what Basquiat is working with as well. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing as well is you asked about how does his work relate to um, this particular moment? I mean, his work is explicitly and implicitly an advocate of the notion of Black Lives Matter. He said that as someone who visited the great museums of New York his whole life, you'll see that the protagonists in most of my paintings are Black, and that's because I don't see Black people in most paintings. And there are like at least three major works of his that address police brutality, police abuse, police violence. Uh, in particular, the work he did about the young artist, Michael Stewart, who was brutally beaten to death by members of the New York Police Department. And then even after death was kind of grotesquely misfigured, you know, on the autopsy table to kind of hide evidence. And that particular murder, I mean, shocked him, terrified him. He realized it could have been him. And there are two other works. Uh, there's one called Lahara, and there's one called um, Irony of a Negro Policeman, you know, that also kind of directly speak to this notion of uh, police violence against people um, who look like him. So last question to both of you. What one thing would you hope that people who came to this exhibit took away from the works of Jean-Michel Basquiat and uh, his co-compatriots there? What do you want people to understand that, that's critical to his legacy? Basquiat was asked uh, what was his subject matter, and he said royalty, heroism, and the streets. 
and the streets create its own notion of royalty and, and, and heroism. And uh, this work all reflects that ethos. These artists were very confident and assured that they were making cultural history at the time that they were doing it. And you can see how serious all of them were, Ram LZ, Lady Pink, you know, Fat Five Freddy, Lee, uh, Futura, A1, Toxic, LA2 that they were kind of swinging for the rafters, shooting for the stars for longevity in terms of the work. And that's why it stands up so well on the walls of the MFA today. Part of the impetus for the show was to show that Basquiat had a Black community. He had a community of color, you know, because that's the mythology about him is that um, he only traveled in the world of, you know, rich white painters, that he was a mascot of, of Warhol, as seen in the Julian Schnabel film, that he was kind of this primitive among um, these successful downtown white artists. And, you know, he has the last laugh now, certainly. Jordana? Yeah, I think the, the big takeaway for me is really the, the multidimensional, multidisciplinary heterogeneous aspects of, of the creative practice that's coming out of this period. You know, that connection of uptown with downtown um, is something that he lived. And, and as that exhibition demonstrates, this is a unique part um, of his experience and so a unique moment in American art history. You know, he's working alongside those, you know, European artists and galleries, but also alongside Ram LZ and Toxic. Um, he's listening to hip hop, he's listening to punk music, he's listening to jazz, he's playing in a noise band and he's producing a hip hop album, right? So this idea that all of these things can be influences and really help us to recognize the diversity of creative practice, right? That he's, you know, a musician, a painter and a writer, but also in turn, sort of the diversity and the heterogeneity of blackness itself, right? That, that there's not one way um, of being. And that I think for me, this exhibition really shows that this work defies all expectations and previous categorizations, that we are forced to rewrite the history of art to take into account the diversity of these practices. Well, thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Kelly. Greg Tate is a writer, musician, and co-curator of the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's exhibition, Writing the Future, Basquiat and the Hip-Hop Generation. Jordana Moore-Sajese is an associate professor of American art at the University of Maryland College Park and author of Reading Basquiat, Exploring Ambivalence in American Art. Writing the Future, Jean-Michel Basquiat and the Hip-Hop Generation at the MFA will be at the museum through May 16, 2021. That's it for this week's show. We're on the web at gbh.org, News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Wes Martin and Hannah Ubeli, and engineered by Dave Goodman. Interns Angela Yang and Kate Dario worked on this show. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.